Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. What's going on, guys? Welcome to the Sixer Sense Podcast. This is your co-host, Jack Duffy. Today, Chris and I will be giving you our NBA award picks, including the heated MVP race and our all-NBA and all-rookie teams. Let's get to it. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Sixer Sense Podcast. This is your co-host, Jack Duffy. What's going on, Chris? How you doing? Hey, guys. I'm Chris Klein. I'm your one of your co-side experts at the Sixer Sense. And I guess this is our uh, first episode, so we're excited. Starting things off today, we're going to go through the All-NBA Award picks. Yeah, man. I'm ready. All right, so MVP, what are you looking for this year? Um, I have, I think it's pretty much 50-50, so I'm not really particularly strong-willed in this opinion, but I, I'm, I lean towards James Harden, just, I think a lot of it is kind of voter fatigue in a way that people don't want to just give it to him a second straight year, but with the numbers he's putting up, with how rocky the start was this season for Houston, and how big a role he played in lifting them out of that kind of funk, I really think Harden deserves it for a second year 12 game stretch in December when they were 14th in the West and then bringing them all the way back up they got as high as what three um in the West at one mm-hmm. point before everyone else got within one game of each other so that's definitely really good uh I agree it's very very close this year it could be a coin flip um with Harden carrying the team averaging 36 points per game which is eight points per game higher than the second leading scorer of Paul George, it's incredible. But I actually, I have Giannis. And just historically looking at the MVP award in and of itself, it's he's the best player on the best team, best defender on the best defensive team in the NBA, and then he's the best offensive player on the best offense. And Mike Boonholzer's completely built this team around Giannis. On offense, he has four shooters around with him. Brooke Lopez was a great signing in the offseason, very underrated. And for him to just have the ball in his hands a lot and attack the rim and be able to distribute it out is huge. Yeah, I definitely think Giannis has obviously a strong case. He's obviously the first superior defender. I think with Harden, though, it just comes down to how important he has been single-handedly to lifting Houston from really bad to really good. There was a large chunk of the season there in the middle where both Clint Capella and Chris Paul were missing time, and Houston's offense didn't really skip a beat. And that was pretty much hard on his own, lifting them 
to that level. I saw, I've seen a few people kind of reference it like this, but Harden by himself is essentially a top five offense. Like his, not only his scoring, but his passing, he's really kind of the, an elite level talent. I think that often gets underappreciated. So I, Houston has the second highest offensive rating in the league this year, despite all the injuries and the funks that they've gone through. Chris Paul hasn't been his normal self. Capella hasn't been quite as good necessarily as he was last year, and they're still probably the primary threat, I think, to Golden State in the West. So I, I just personally lean Harden in that respect, especially with how historic his scoring output has been. But I, there's obviously a very strong case as well for Giannis. And I think Russ's MVP season, first year without Kevin Durant, of him winning MVP over James Harden when James Harden had a better team and was – 50-50 that year too, but Russ had the least talented team or a team that was less talented, but he still ended up winning the MVP with that triple-double season, which he's continued for his third year in a row. But yeah, Harden definitely is, he actually is tied with Paul George with 2.1 steals per game to lead the NBA, which I think is impressive. And one thing about I think that we'll look back on with this MVP is you kind of, kind of think about it with like Heisman moments you think in like college football and five years from now we'll look back on this and this season and remember James Harden's uh streak of 30 point games is what he has two or three 50 point triple doubles this year and that's just that's a lot more memorable Harden hitting like two or three threes in a row is a lot more appealing to audiences now than like a dunk from Giannis and that'll be a big case for Harden like looking back on it and one thing is Jordan and Wilt Chamberlain both have averaged over 36 points per games and not won the MVP. So I think there's a question of, personally, I think there should be a Offensive Player of the Year along with the Defensive Player of the Year to go along with the MVP. So like this year, you give the MVP to Giannis because best player on the best team, and then maybe Offensive Player of the Year, you give that to Harden. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's definitely a fair way to approach it, and I wouldn't be opposed to splitting up the awards like that. And like you mentioned, I think narrative plays a really strong part in who gets MVP each year. I think Westbrook, during his triple-double year, obviously the narrative was really focused on him because he was doing something that we hadn't seen since the big O. And Harden, it would seem that those kind of big narrative-building moments have gone towards him this year with his streak, with his big scoring numbers. But, I mean, it feels right now like Giannis is still the favorite. So I'm really interested to see how kind of over this, these next few weeks, how that discussion shapes up and if Harden can make up kind of the ground that he might not currently hold. One thing you can also look at is Giannis plays about four to five minutes less per game than James Harden does. But if you look at win shares per 48 minutes, Giannis is still leading that category. And he, Harden obviously has to play a lot more minutes because he has a a lot bigger role on his team with a lot less talent, but Giannis is still having an incredible season. He's the first player since Oscar Robertson in 1961 and 1962 season to have 27 points, 12 rebounds and six assists in one season, which is pretty impressive. And he's, he's led that team very, very well this year. So obviously it's, you could honestly do a coin flip with Giannis and Harden third. I have Paul George. What do you think? Yeah, I think it gets a little bit cloudier than perhaps it was a few weeks ago now that OKC has slipped back in the standings. But I think Paul George, especially with his defensive prowess, he's going to have a really strong say in the defensive player of the year voting. He probably holds that third spot for me still. 
I think there are guys like Curry and Embiid and Jokic who are in that conversation as well, but I would stick with Paul George personally. A lot of it could be recency bias with he came back from after the all-star break with that shoulder injury. You could see him running through screens and he could, you could see he's holding that shoulder going through screens and he just hasn't shot the same since then, but you can't disregard everything he was doing before that. It was a three-man race for a while. Zach Lowe even was saying it's, it was actually a three-headed race for the MVP and he was second leading scorer, led the NBA in steals and was doing everything for that Thunder team. Yeah, I definitely think you have to look at the season as a whole. I think that's really important when you're evaluating these awards, and we're probably going to end up talking about that a lot with some of the other awards, like Most Improved and Rookie of the Year when, with Luca and Trey. You know, evaluating things as a whole versus not putting too much weight on recent events versus early events. It's a tough thing to balance, but I do think Paul George still deserves that number three spot. After three... I can envision a scenario where Jokic, Nikola Jokic, is higher on the MVP ballot than Embiid is, but Embiid has the first team All-NBA, and that's what I have right now. I have Jokic at four, and he's doing incredible this year. He's averaging over 20 points per game, 10 rebounds, and seven assists, and the only guys to ever do that, uh, Will's done it twice, Oscar Robertson's done that three times, and Russ has done it three times, and for a center to do that, to do that today is incredible and he's running literally running that entire offense and their second best player is Jamal Murray Gary Harris and those guys aren't the most consistent players so it's a lot of a lot of weight and a lot of burden is on his shoulders this year yeah I think just kind of similar to Harden and Giannis when it comes to Embiid and Jokic especially since they're at the same position it's basically a coin flip this year I think Embiid obviously has the more impactful defensive presence but Jokic has done some incredible things on offense the Nuggets are doing much better than expected despite dealing with several injuries throughout the season so I think there's a pretty strong argument either way like you said you know they're both going to be jockeying for that first team all-NBA spot and there's not really a wrong way to go in that respect you look at the Nuggets last year, they were in that tiebreaker game with the Timberwolves on the last the 82nd game of the season, and they didn't even make the playoffs last year. And for them to go to that, to the nine seed, to a two seed the next year is incredible. And their starting lineup hasn't changed at all. Will Barton was a little bit more impactful last year because of his injury this year. But for that team, to their core to be the same and then be this much better just speaks to how much Jokic is doing with this offense, with running through the DHOs through him and just his vision and his ability just to run that offense. And fourth guy I have, Joel Embiid. He's averaging 27.5, 13.7 rebounds, 3.5 assists, and two blocks a game. And he's seventh in the league in player efficiency rating at 26. He's had a crazy year. Yeah, I definitely think Embiid and Jokic would round out my top five behind the first three. Steph has a really good argument as well. He missed some time with injury early in the season, but Embiid has dealt with you know, similar time missed. So, yeah, I would put probably Embiid 4 and Jokic 5. But, again, it's it's really a coin flip, and it depends pretty much subjectively on what you value most in a player. I would give Embiid the edge because of just how important he is to the Sixers' defense and how it kind of falls apart without him. But, you know, it it's 50-50, neck and neck. It's crazy that in the modern NBA – 
a lot of it's built on small ball and positionless basketball and bigs have kind of cycled out, but you have two guys in Jokic and Embiid that you take them off their prospective teams and they completely fall apart. And I couldn't even imagine Jokic hasn't missed much time this year. I couldn't imagine what that team looks like without him also. It'd just be, it'd be a mess. Yeah, it's really impressive what Denver has done. You know, they've gone through the Will Barton injury. Paul Millsap missed some time. Gary Harris missed some time. Michael Porter Jr. hasn't suited up. They had the whole Isaiah Thomas fiasco. There's just been so many guys in and out of the rotation all season. And for them to be as consistently good in the Western Conference, which is by far still the tougher conference depth-wise, it's just been super impressive. And to go on past Embiid and Jokic, Steph has had one of the most underrated seasons ever. I mean, if you look at the numbers, he has this, the same effective field goal percentage as Giannis, but he's doing it from three, which it's absurd. He is having an insane season. No one's really talking about it. He's just with him being on that team. He doesn't really get much buzz and people have kind of gotten used to it with him doing it for the last six years. And with him and KD being on the same team, it kind of puts both of their names out of the MVP conversation because you could say, you could just say both of those guys are relying on each other and that's why they're not as deserving for an MVP. Yeah. I think KD too has been wildly underrated this year. And again, like you said, I think voter fatigue plays a role and I think, the fact that they're on the same team and the Warriors just have that reputation of being so star lad and that it's kind of hard to put, you know, kind of give the credit to one player or another. I think that's what hurts Steph and Katie and kind of keeps them outside the top five. But both have a really solid argument. Like you said, Katie's been a really solid defender this year as he has been in past years. He's efficiently scoring at all three levels. Steph, is probably the second best player in the NBA at this point. He's been nothing to lose that kind of title this year. So both are right up there. And you've seen how the Warriors play without Steph. He's He might not be the best player on the Warriors, but he's definitely the most important player of their team. Yeah, it's definitely a kind of a toss-up between Steph and KD. Again, it comes down to what one might value in a player, but I think in terms of most valuable to Golden State, it's pretty distinctively Steph. So we got MVP. Let's move on to Defensive Player of the Year. I have uh, Rudy Gobert. The Jazz, again, are an elite defensive team this year. They have the second-best defensive rating in the NBA behind Milwaukee. And Gobert has been pretty much the entire reason why he's the best shot blocker in the league and just eats up so much space around the rim with his length. He's pretty mobile for his size as well. And he has really established himself as the prime rim protector in the NBA, which is what a lot of voters value when it comes to defensive player of the year. So I have a feeling we're going to see Gobert kind of at the top of this discussion for a long time coming. You know, he won it last year, and I think he deserves it a second time in a row this year. Yeah, I could definitely see Gobert going back-to-back, but I have I have Giannis as my defensive player of the year. He's first in defensive win shares, and he's also first in defensive rating at 99. The Bucks have the best defensive rating in the whole league, and he's just he's a centerpiece of that defense. What's kind of interesting about the Bucks is Giannis doesn't even guard the best player on the opponent's team. Budenholzer puts him on the worst perimeter defender, and why they do that is because 
Not that he can't handle it, but he kind of roam, roams around and freelances around the baseline to protect a paint. And it's sort of like a one-man zone that the Bucks have. So when guys can drive to the basket, Giannis is always there just to protect the rim. And he's one of the best rim protectors in the entire league with his freakish athleticism and length, size. Yeah, and I'm going to credit this stat to uh, Daniel Porch of Fanside. He uh, wrote a great piece uh, last week on the Defense Player of the Year. Candidates made a great case for a few different people. But um, Gobert does lead the NBA in defensive rating per minute and defensive player impact plus minus. So in terms of advanced analytics, he's right at the top like he was last year. And again, Utah has just developed into such a defensive stalwart kind of team. And Gobert's at the forefront of that. One thing is that could go in Gobert's favor is the Bucks have better help defenders than I'd say the Jazz do. Joe Ingles, not really the best defender. Donovan Mitchell's a young guard and takes well for some of those guys to adapt to modern NBA defense. But Giannis has a lot more. Eric Bledsoe, Malcolm Brogdon are both great defenders. Middleton's not too bad. So Giannis definitely has a lot more help than Gobert, which, again, speaks to, to Gobert with his impact on that team. Yeah, you know, they do have some solid guys. Like, I think Joe Ingles is really underrated as a wing defender. Donovan Mitchell's been solid. Ricky Rubio's not bad, but... On the same side of things, you know, they've struggled at times with their favors guarding in space. So I do think Gobert has had a lot more holes that he's needed to plug, perhaps, than Giannis. So I would give him the edge. Danny Chow, the ringer, had a great article last week talking about how Giannis could be the first player since Hakeem in 93-94 and Jordan in 87-88 to get both MVP and Defensive Player of the Year. Yeah, that'd definitely be a, a cool storyline. I do think it's close. I think Giannis and Paul George are both kind of neck and neck in that two and three range. So I don't think it's by any means certain or set in stone that Rudy wins it. But I I still favor, I think, Obey by a decent margin just because of how singularly important he is to Utah's success as a team. Yeah, we didn't even talk about Paul George. He's definitely going to be up there in the conversation. His impact, especially before his shoulder injury, like we mentioned earlier, he was locking down everybody in the league on defense, led the, leads the NBA in steals currently, and just his length. And OKC is their top five in defense this year. They're incredible, and they've gone through a rough stretch when Paul George got hurt, and that speaks a lot to his impact on that team, especially on the defensive end. So... He's definitely in the conversation. Yeah, definitely. OKC was maybe the best defensive team for a, a good bit there early in the season. They, again, have regressed recently in pretty much every respect. Plus, they're dropping the standings. But George played a really big role all year. This is maybe one of the best defensive seasons he's put together, and he's been an elite defender for most of his career. And the fact that he does it, just and Giannis, both do what they do on offense and have put up Defensive player of the year caliber seasons, I think, is really impressive. That's something you can't say about Gobert, even though he is a very effective offensive player. Both Giannis and Paul George are MVP candidates on offensive merits alone. So I think that does just point to how well-rounded they've been, and their ability to put that effort level into both sides is really genuinely impressive. It's hard to do. Yeah, it would be huge to have two of the top three MVP candidates also be top three candidates in Defensive Player of the Year. Let's move on to Rookie of the Year. It's obvious. If you want to make the argument for Trey Young, I don't want to hear it. It's obviously Luka Doncic. And it's he. Luka started off hot, and he had these lofty expectations coming from the EuroLeague being the next best thing in the league. And Trey Young had the opposite, started 20% from three in November. And it looked like it was Luka's 
for the entire year, and it's it, he's still going to win it. But Trey's had a, a pretty hot last few months. But then again, Luke is averaging 21, 7.7, and 6 assists on 42% shooting. Incredible for a first-year guy to do that. Yeah, I mean, and circling back to what we were talking about with Paul George and the MVP race, you really have to look at the season kind of holistically as a whole. You know, George may not have had the strongest end of the season, but for the good part of that early and middle portion, he was easily in the race with Harden and Giannis, like a very equal counterpart. And with Luka and Trey, Trey has probably finished the season, his last third of the season, stronger than Luka has. But holistically, Doncic has been a an all-star caliber producer, basically, from the first few weeks. Trey really struggled early. So I think just viewing it as a whole, there's no way you can go with anyone other than Luka. You can maybe argue that Trey has the brighter future, but that the Hawks won the trade because Trey's going to be really good too, and they got an extra pick. But I don't think you can argue that Trey, when you look at things as a whole, is going to be the rookie of the year over Luka this season. You could see, looking at the numbers, that Luka's numbers went down after DeAndre Jordan, Harrison Barnes, and Wesley Matthews were traded. That's when he started to decline because they had, I mean, they were full-fledged embracing tank mode, and he had a lot more responsibility in offense and a lot less weapons. So a lot of the defenses were just concentrating on stopping Luka, and that's why his three-point percentage dropped down to where it is right now at 32%. Yeah, I think there's a really strong argument, if it's even an argument at this point, to say that since the trade deadline, Trey has had considerably more talent around him than Luka, just especially with Dallas's injuries of late, you know, looking at their game against the Sixers the other night, it's just they're kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel at this point. Even though Luka didn't play in that game, you can see that talent-wise, they're just kind of in full-blown tank mode at this point. So I do think that has contributed to Luka's perhaps decline, and it's really helped. Trey has some really underrated young pieces that fit really well with him. Lloyd Pierce has done an excellent job coaching that team, instilling an offense that maximizes Trey's output as both a shooter and a passer. So I do think it, yeah, I think that plays a role. We were talking about how his, his success since trade deadline or the All-Star break. And the 17 games since the All-Star break, Trey's averaging 25.8 points per game, five rebounds and nine assists, shooting 45% from the field, 40% from three, and 87% from the free throw line. Those are very, very good numbers. 17 games, so it's a small sample size. But you can tell that the Hawks' second half season, Boyd Pierce has definitely gotten that team meshed very well. John Collins missed a little bit of the beginning of the year with some injuries. And him and Trey Young in that two-man game is incredible. And you can tell that Trey Young, he thoroughly loves setting his his guys up, which is not what he was in college. College, you, could, you thought he's just a guy that was just going to chuck up 20 shots a game, get like 5 of 15 from 3, which is what he had to do to Oklahoma. But in the NBA, you can tell he's he's loves being a primary facilitator. Yeah, I think... His season really at Oklahoma was quite the interesting spectacle in that he put up historic numbers, but there's a really big difference between early season Trey and late season Trey that year, just because I think he kind of got worn down toward the end when defenses keyed in on him as Oklahoma's only real threat. So now that he's in the NBA with more spacing, better talent, I think once he kind of got over the early season rookie struggles that you expect from a point guard, he's really kind of settled in and he's showcasing those skills that made Atlanta want to pick him top five. I know a lot of people thought that was a stretch. I know some people who thought Colin Sexton would be the better point guard prospect, which I never quite understood. But, you know, that was an opinion. 
So I really think what Trey has done is impressive, and I think there's a very real argument to be made that he will outperform Luca long term. I'm not sure if I would buy that or make that prediction, but holistically on the season, I still think Luca's set in stone the rookie of the year. When you look at rookie of the year, a lot of times if it's a good class like it is now, the rookie of the year transcends normal rookie performance, and Luca's definitely done that. He was a borderline all-star in the West as a rookie. I mean, his numbers, 21, 8, and 6, is crazy. And he's just, he's already impacting the game on multiple levels, as young as he is. And that's just going to continue from here. And we also have to, we have to mention DeAndre Ayton. And I think his start of the year, defensively, he was so, he had no idea what he was doing defensively. He had no awareness on the court. And by the end of the year, he's improved a lot on defense. You can tell that. He has somewhat of an impact on the interior, and from where he started this year, it's he's made a big jump, especially on such a bad team like the Phoenix Suns. Yeah, back towards the uh, draft last year, I never really bought the uh, narrative that Aiden couldn't defend. He really struggled, obviously, with placement and with instincts and kind of knowing where to be on the floor at Arizona. But he always had the tools. He's big, strong, long, and he's really mobile for his size, which is a really underrated, I think, aspect of his game or his repertoire coming in he's always had the tools to be a good defender it was just a matter of whether or not he could get to a team that gave him the necessary development tools to get there and I think we've seen here toward the end of the year that he's putting in the work to become a better defender and it's paying off so I do think there's a very real path for him becoming if not at least average but potentially even like a positive defender so I do think Aiden deserves a shout as a distant third-place guy. He hasn't maybe had the season that some people hoped, but he has been underrated, under the radar, really solid, you know, beneath the sun's mess of the season. He's really been good, and he's shown some really promising signs of growth. So I think he's going to be a really strong piece moving forward. Yeah, I agree. I think the Suns are probably the one of the worst organizations in the whole league, and that's kind of shadowed what Aiton's done. I mean, he's averaging 16 points and 10 rebounds, averaging a double-double as a rookie, almost two assists, and then 0.9 steals, 0.9 blocks per game. And in 50% of the NBA seasons, you'd see DeAndre Aiton winning Rookie of the Year, which just goes to show how strong this rookie class is, at least the top the top three guys are. And then also, Jaron Jackson Jr. has had a great year as well. He only played 58 games due to an injury, but he's the future of the NBA bigs. Can can shoot the three ball, defend, and run the floor. And he's he's also gotten overlooked because the market he's in and how bad and just irrelevant the Memphis Grizzlies are. Yeah, I definitely think playing in Memphis and having to play alongside and behind Marcus All earlier in the year kind of hurt Triple J's ability to make his like rookie of the year case. He was always had the tools and he had the flashes and the big games, but he didn't really have the consistent minutes and opportunity to put together a legitimate rookie of the year case. But there is still a case to be made that he could be one of the top two or three guys in this class long term. His defense and mobility is awesome. He's a great shooter for his size. And like you said, he really fits the modern NBA big man mold. So he's going to be really good. And, yeah, there are a lot of guys at the top of this year's rookie class. It was abnormally deep, like you said. You know, the whole lottery was filled with really capable guys, and we've seen guys outside the lottery that have outperformed expectations like Landry Shamit. So there's definitely a lot more talent this year than normal. I think Luka is a much better 
top-end prospect that we normally get. Trey Young has been putting himself in that tier since the trade deadline, since the All-Star break. So it's been a really fun race. The next thing I was going to ask is, if you had to pick one rookie from this year, five years from now, who do you think is going to be the better player? That's, it's tough. I still lean, I think, the safer pick, at least, would be Luka. I still think he's going to be able to improve physically and as a defender. I think he's going to become more efficient with his shot. But there's a very real argument to be made with just how unique Trey's skill is. Obviously, a super special passer to a degree that really Luka can't even reach. And Luka's a great passer himself. And he has, you know, that kind of not to Steph's level, but he has the range to bend defenses in a way that not many players can. So I think there's a real argument both ways. I would still lean Luka. I think Luka has, just given his size, is the safer pick, but you could go either way. Defensively, Trey's not the best defender right now. I'd say at best, hopefully he's the fifth best defender on his team at most times. But most guards are a lot of guards in the modern NBA aren't great defenders, so it's not a big deal. But Luca's defensively is definitely a lot better than Trey Young is. But yeah, five years from now, the the way the NBA is now with positionless basketball, a bunch of guys around six seven that can guard, defend multiple positions, I'd definitely go Luca, with especially with his ability to score on anywhere on the floor. One thing that a lot of people don't realize about Trey Young is he his ability to get get to the rim is very underrated, and that's part of his game that. I didn't really, I didn't watch him a ton at Oklahoma, but when he got into the league, especially during his shooting struggles, he could still get into the rim. Like that floater to beat Philly, or so mm-hmm. go. That was impressive. Yeah, and I, I mean, unless I'm completely misremembering, I don't think Trey's finishing numbers were all that impressive, if even like decent at all at Oklahoma. I think it's something he worked on over the summer and has just gotten a whole lot better at it. Because with his thin frame, he always had some issues you know, finishing inside against stronger defenders. So his growth in that area, his, the floaters he's added, his touch has really kind of been displayed lately. I think that's a really underrated, like you said, aspect of his game and probably what has been able to push him from a really solid prospect to arguably, in some cases, the best long-term prospect in the class, if you ask just some people. So, yeah, his finishing has been a really pleasant surprise and a really important development talk about that floater that he has is very good at that and James Harden's floater you see how successful he is with that with a lot of guys will back off Harden and let him drive and then close on at the last second then he'll hit a six foot eight foot floater over him or D'Angelo Russell he's those floaters that go above the camera you don't even see him anymore and they drop in if Trey Young can get that consistently then it opens up his entire game. So we have Rookie of the Year. Let's go to Most Improved Player. I think this is a pretty simple one as well. Yeah, I have Pascal Siakam in Toronto. I think De'Aaron Fox and Buddy Hill both made a really strong case. But I think team success kind of plays a role here. Toronto has been one of the best teams in the league all season, and Siakam has played a really big role in that. He was kind of, you know, that promising bench young bench guy last year and he's really taken that leap to a legitimate third star arguably an all-star snub in the east he's averaging 16.8 6.8 3.1 assists pretty efficient scoring he's improved his three-point stroke quite a bit and he's a really hyper versatile defender that helps toronto a lot on that end so i think you have to give it to siakam yeah i agree and his third year leap I mean, it came out of nowhere. He went from seven, four and a half, and two this year to 
16.8, like you said, 6.8 and 3.1. And then his three-point shot went from 22% last year to 35% this year, and he's attempting 2.6 per game. His third-year leap, you could also say that it's similar to Kawhi's. Kawhi's third-year improvement kind of came out of nowhere as well. And going back to Pascal's impact on the team, he's the ball is in his hands a lot, and especially with Kawhi missing about a fourth of the season and Kyle Lowry missed a lot of time with his back injury that's been lingering for a while and then uh, ankle issues. Pascal's had a lot of responsibility in that offense, dribbling the ball kind of almost like Giannis. Not as, he's not as physically dominating as Giannis, but he's – He's one of the best open court players we have in the league. Yeah, he's really a unique talent that has added a lot to his game over the summer that I don't think a lot of people saw coming. His three-pointer shot was always going to be a really important development of his, really kind of something that his long-term success was dependent on. But him jumping up to like a league average, above league average mark this season on two to three attempts per game was never really expected. So that was a really pleasant kind of surprise from him. And like you said, he can handle in the open court. He's become a really dynamic transition player for a Toronto team that has a lot of pieces who can thrive in that setting. With his new shot, with his passing, he's also been able to find a niche in the half-court offense. So he's been really, really fun to watch. And I think he's a pretty clear-cut favorite at this point. Last year, the guy that LeBron was just dominating in that series when they swept the Raptors and then this year he's and there's an overtime game a few weeks ago where Raptors and OKC and with Kawhi on the floor the last their last second shot they had Pascal isolating and getting to the rim to finish the ball over Kawhi which says a lot about Nurse's trust in him with this little bit of experience yeah and I, I mean I think team success weighs into all, all these awards to a certain degree and I think when it comes to the most improved player candidate. Siakam's the only really strong candidate on a legit title contender. And he's very much one of the three or four most important players on that roster. So it's hard not to uh, give him the nod. And I'd say the second guy on that on the list for most improved is De'Aaron Fox. At the beginning of the year, De'Aaron was, he was a clear-cut favorite for it. He started the year really hot and it was almost his award to lose. And then he kind of hauled out throughout the year. And, but, I mean, De'Aaron Fox still had an incredible year this year, him and Buddy Hield both. Yeah, I think De'Aaron, Buddy, and D'Angelo Russell kind of are jockeying for two through four on my list at this point. Um, I know a lot of people kind of are hesitant to give second-year players most improved consideration, but I don't really buy that. I think, you know, if you take the biggest leap skill-wise, you should be in consideration, and De'Aaron put up a really strong case for most of the year. He was, in some eyes, an all-star snub in the West as a point guard, which is really tough because there are a lot of really gifted point guards in the West. So he's up there. Buddy has become one of the single most potent three-point shooters in the league, almost on Clay's level production-wise all season. So he's been really impressive. D'Angelo is obviously an all-star for the first time this year. So there are a lot of really solid candidates. I still, of course, lean Pascal, but those three guards have really kind of put their stamp on the conversation as well. Going back to the Buddy Hield, Darren Fox combo in Sacramento, Buddy Hield is he's averaging 21 points per game this year with five rebounds. He's shooting 43% from deep and 46% from the field, which is crazy. And he also set the franchise record, made threes at 261, which is, I mean, that's really impressive for him. And De'Aaron Fox, the same thing, went from 11 points per game to 17 and a half, 
with seven assists. And he's, I'd say Darren Fox is up there with one of the fastest guys in the league. If you're a Sacramento fan, you have a bright future ahead. I'd say Brooklyn and Sacramento are my two and three, my league pass teams behind the Sixers. Yeah, I definitely agree. Sacramento is one of the more entertaining just watches from a pure entertainment standpoint in the league. And I do think part of what sets Pascal apart maybe from De'Aaron is just the role they were both asked to play last season. Pascal was in kind of a smaller, more contained bench role, wasn't asked to do quite as much, whereas De'Aaron was on a tanking team with not much to play for. So they kind of gave De'Aaron free reign at a lot of different points. So I think that kind of plays into it and what has made Pascal's rise so impressive. But the improvement in efficiency and shooting and playmaking for De'Aaron has been nothing short of stellar. So I think he's probably my number two at this point. You know, it's been a really fun rise for Sacramento this year. A team not a lot of people had high hopes for. I think when I wrote my record predictions for the NBA for a hoops habit this year, I think I had Sacramento at the bottom. So them becoming a borderline playoff team for much of the season was really a cool and fun kind of development. So a lot of that credit goes to both De'Aaron and Buddy. Going back to Sacramento, they just got taken out of playoff contention a few days ago. Going back to D'Angelo Russell this year, he's I mean, he's an all-star, first-time all-star. And he had a lot of a lot of people were hating on D'Lo for a lot of his career because he was he was a really high usage guy. Like last year, he was he had a 33% usage rate, and that's 94th percentile in the NBA. And you had that with only averaging 15 and a half points per game with five assists. And then this year, his usage rate is actually about two percent higher, but he's averaging 21 a game, seven assists. And his turnovers are just about the same. So his production has gone up a lot. He hasn't really changed the way he's played. The Lakers get a lot of hate for trading D'Lo. But D'Angelo Russell hasn't changed his style of play. He's just gotten a whole lot better. And you can't you can't track that if you're the Lakers. So I don't give them any blame for that. But I give a lot of credit to D'Angelo Russell and all the work he's put in to improve his game that much. And he's D'Lo's also, he doesn't draw a lot of fouls either. So to average that many points... Kind of like what Kyrie does. They don't they don't draw a lot of fouls, and for them to score that much and be that efficient is really impressive. Yeah, I think I kind of do kind of give the Lakers a little bit of flack in that I thought D'Angelo was a really nice compliment to Lonzo on the perimeter. I never really understood the argument that you could only have one, which is, I think, what Magic and the front office were kind of going on. You know, we have Lonzo, so we need to get rid of D'Angelo. But I always thought they were would have made a really cool pairing just – given how well their skill sets fit. You know, D'Angelo's kind of a smooth half-court guy who can create in pick and rolls. Lonzo's more the transition guy, the hockey assist guy, who's going to do a lot of cutting off the ball. And I thought they could have had a really cool pairing in the backcourt. Lonzo's obviously big enough to defend two guards at a really high level. But yeah, like you said, no one, I don't think, saw D'Angelo improving as much as he did this year. He hasn't really changed stylistically, but he has added a lot to his game that was missing in terms of shooting efficiency from deep. His floater's gotten a lot better. So, yeah, it's been a really impressive rise for him. And one last guy to add into the most improved player box is Monty Morris, the backup point guard for the Nuggets. Leads the NBA in assist-to-turnover ratio. His stats don't blow you away. It's 10 points per game, 3.7 assists, one steal, and two rebounds. But he's definitely the, I'd say he's the best backup point guard in the league, along with Terry Rozier. 
And a lot of teams were looking for him at the trade deadline, but the Nuggets weren't going to give him up just because Isaiah Thomas is unplayable. But he's shooting 50% from the field and 41% from three. So he's a very valuable player that he's not going to win it, but Monty Morris has had a great year. Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm almost not necessarily surprised due to market size, but Monte Morris has had such an underrated season. It's, like you said, efficiency, his complete avoidance of turnovers, basically. He's just been super impressive. Really that kind of prototypical backup point guard who can run the offense at a really high level, kind of fits into his role, and it fills a very tight niche at a very high level. So he's been a big part of Denver's success, their ability to remain consistent with so many players in and out of the lineup. He's kind of helped carry and maintain that second unit. So I definitely think he deserves a uh, shout in this conversation, even if he might not be on the same level as some of the other guys we've talked about. He's a really solid player. I think that wraps up the most improved player. So going to six men of the year, I think this one's straightforward as well. Lou Williams, former mm-hmm. sixer. Yeah, I mean, I think DeMontis Sabonis and Montrez Harrell had legit arguments earlier in the season, but as the campaign has kind of um, transpired, Lou's separated himself, especially with the Clippers. Recent run here after the trade deadline, with how much Lou has meant to their success post-Tobias trade, you know, I think it's hard not to give him a second straight six-man award. Coming off the bench is a skill that not everyone can do. Not a lot of guys like it. Not a lot of guys embrace it or accept it. And Lou Williams has done that all throughout his career. And to average 20 points and five assists, shooting the ball 43% is really impressive. And, I mean, he's he's scoring 20 points per game, averaging 26 minutes per game. So he's, he said Montrez Harrell, also a fellow Clipper, averaging basically 17 points, seven rebounds, rounding that up. And Clippers are... They're a playoff team, and that's a lot of, to Doc Rivers, but Lou Williams and Montrezl Harrell both have a big stake in that also. Yeah, the Clippers bench has been maybe the best in the league this year. They're re- that's really the reason they're in the playoff hunt. It's just because of how deep they are and how many guys they've been able to have step up and produce, even if they don't have that one kind of superstar talent that's carrying the mantle, although you could argue that Tobias and Danilo Gallinari have kind of stepped into that role this year. It's really been a whole team effort and Lou is their leading scorer at 20.3 points per game in like you said just 26 minutes so his production has been really impressive he's also one of the better closers in the league his ability to get buckets at all three levels really helps when the game slows down late he's kind of similar to Jimmy Buckets in that sense so yeah I think Lou's pretty clear-cut the favorite at this point I think the Clippers can I mean if they get if they get that four that four five matchup in the playoffs I think they could I think they could go to the second round honestly if they get a right matchup I think I could see them I mean I could see them them in Portland would be that'd be a really good series just with how deep the Clippers are them and the Spurs would be really close so this Clippers team is no joke and coming from a Sixers fan it's kind of hard to see a team with such a loaded bench and then we turn around and our best guy off the bench is Mike Scott and TJ McConnell. So we'd much rather have Lou Williams and Montrez, but can't have everything. Yeah, and, and shout out to Landry Shamit for how well he's done since the trade. You know, that guard rotation in L.A. has been really solid, not just Lou, but Pat Beverly and Shamit and Shea Gilgis-Alexander, two of whom are rookies who have been able to step up right away and play really well and 
carry the mantle for a team that, like you said, has a very real shot at getting to the second round. I think Portland, after the Nurkic injury, is vulnerable. I don't think San Antonio is the most, you know, daunting opponent at this point. So I do think the Clippers have a very real chance, depending on where they land, to uh, make a little playoff run. Let's move on to Coach of the Year. I think it's Mike Budenholzer, Coach of the Bucks, first-year guy. Yeah, um, I mean, I think Doc Rivers has a very real case with how well the Clippers have done without, like I said, a real all-star talent. But I think Budenholzer with just how different the Bucks look this year compared to last year without a whole lot of talent added. Brooke Lopez was obviously a big piece, but they're very similar rosters, you know, comparing this year to last year. And the Bucks have just gotten so much more efficient on offense. They're an elite defense despite perhaps not having a lot of players who you would consider elite defenders typically. And I think a whole lot of that credit just goes to the system Budenholzer has set up. We saw it in Atlanta that he can put together really successful teams without a lot of high-level talent. That 61 Hawks team didn't have a superstar. So they had five guys who played well together, who moved the ball, and who really excelled together on offense. And he's done a very similar thing in Milwaukee. Although it's obviously different with Giannis being kind of that superstar talent. Just the difference between having Budenholzer and not has been so large that I think you have to go with him. Budenholzer's unlocked Giannis's full potential, which is obviously going to improve every year. But for him to do that and put in place the perfect offensive defense to fully uh, utilize Giannis's strengths is definitely all that credit goes to Coach Bud. And I'd say a second guy. I'd say there's two guys that are hand-in-hand for second place on that coach of the year, and that's Doc Rivers and Nate McMillan, which I think Doc Rivers should have gotten a lot more credit last year for that team post-Blake Griffin trade was just, I mean, and even this year, just the talent that they have, and for them to be 15 games above 500 is incredible. You wouldn't look at the Clippers roster and think, you know, that they're 15 wins above 500 and jockeying for home court in the Western Conference. Like, that's just not what their roster looks like. But Rivers has done a really exceptional job at maximizing all the different skill sets on that roster, balancing an elite bench with really you know, five guys that you might not expect to be starting on that roster. So it's been, I think he's a pretty clear-cut second for me. But like you said, Nate McMillan deserves credit for how well Indiana played without Victor Oladipo this season. And I think... Mike Malone also deserves a shout for how well Denver has played compared to last season. Yeah, I had um, Mike Malone on there too. And for Nate McMillan, that Old Depot injury, that was, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that was 40 games ago that that happened. And they're still locked in at the fifth seed right now in the playoffs, already clinched a playoff spot. So for them to be 46 and 32 currently going to the playoffs, it speaks a lot to Nate McMillan as a coach and that system he has. And, you look at that team and the Pacers, there's not really one guy that stands out as sort of like the Clippers, just a whole team effort. And Boyan Bogdanovich has played great this year. Miles Turner is a, also, we could talk about him, a defensive player of the year candidate. And Sabonis has been great as well. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a really um, tight contest when it comes to the second and third place guys. McMillan has really done an impressive job of keeping Indiana afloat. They have struggled a bit more toward the end of the season, 
But like you said, Turner and Thad Young are really solid defensive players in the interior. Boyan Bogdanovic has stepped up in a big way. And the Pacers could really give Boston a nice little run in the first round, assuming that's how it shakes shakes out. So they're not a team to kind of be overlooked. They've kept themselves a very formidable, respectable opponent without an all-star guard in Oladipo, who was clearly their most important offensive piece last season. So it's been really impressive how well he's done. Yeah, it's great to see how that team's come together. Yeah, and like you said, Mike Malone also, another candidate, going from not being in the playoffs last year to being a two-seed right now with over 51. Mike Malone's system is working around Jokic. In the modern NBA, it's hard to work around a center like that, but for that team to be as talented as they are and win as much is very good. I, just, I don't know if how far the Nuggets can go in the playoffs with – their, their second guy, Jamal Murray, is very inconsistent. Gary Harris is as well. And then you don't know if Paul Millsap's going to be healthy or how much he's going to contribute. So Nuggets are definitely a – I could see them sort of being like the Hawks, a really good regular season team. And then once they get to the playoffs, they kind of just shut down. They could be they could be gone in the first round. But that doesn't, that doesn't discredit what Mike Malone's done with this team this year with winning. Yeah, they're definitely a unique build offensively and defensively. Defensively with Jokic, he's not, you know, center that you would typically want on the floor defensively in the playoffs where teams will kind of hone in on that and put him in pick and rolls and kind of try to exploit that. But at the same time, they've just they've exceeded expectations all year. They've dealt with countless injuries and they're finally getting somewhat healthier toward the end, which is nice to see. So I do think Mike Malone, given everything Denver has gone through injuries wise. Plus, they're just performance level being well above whatever the expectations were coming into the season, which was probably like a bottom two or three seed in the West at best for a lot of people. I do think he deserves a shout in the Coach of the Year conversation. So we just did Coach of the Year. Let's move on to all NBA teams. Let's go through all the guards first, and then we can go like guards, forwards, and the centers. How does that sound? Sounds good to me. All right. So I think the I think there's three locks among the guards I think that's Steph and Harden on the first team and then I think Damian Lillard's a lock on that second team and then I'd say Kyrie is probably I'd say the four I think Kyrie's the fourth guy that's I think those first four guys are definitely going to fill out those first two teams with Steph and Harden on that first team yeah I'm in total agreement just this year Steph's like we said earlier is having one of the more underrated seasons among guys just with his the volume of threes he shoots and just continues to his consistency in scoring and then Harden having one of the best scoring seasons ever. And then Damian Lillard last year in the playoff, they got swept by the Pelicans and everyone was Damian Lillard was getting shut down by Drew Holiday. And I think last summer he took that, he took that very personally and just improved his craft. And now this year he's averaging 26, seven and five and leading that Portland team with, now without their third best player, Nurkic, and he's doing a great job. Yeah, I think Portland's ability over the past few seasons, despite not maybe having the best talent roster-wise to kind of stake in that top tier of the Western Conference standings, you know, top four or five all year, has been really impressive. And I think a lot of that goes back to Lillard's presence on the perimeter. He continues to improve as a playmaker and as a defender. He's nowhere near as bad in that respect as he was early in his career, and he's just such a dynamic scorer from three-point range, and he's 
a great finisher. So, yeah, I think Lillard is locked into that first spot on the second team behind Curry and Harden. And do you have Kyrie as your uh, second guard slot on that second team? Yeah, yeah, I think those four are kind of locked in overall. I would agree with you in that respect. Kyrie's had Kyrie's had an incredible year, too. He's averaging 24, five rebounds, and seven assists, which is a career high, while shooting 49% from the field and 40% from three. And his effective field goal percentage is in the 91st percentile among guards in the NBA. So just, I think a lot of the people say Boston's better without Kyrie, which I completely disagree with because especially when you get into a playoff series, when the game slows down the half court, you're going to need a guy like Kyrie to be able to slice through defense and score at will, which the Celtics do not have besides him. Tatum has not had the best year. He's not in a sophomore slump, but he's not taking the steps people thought he would. And there's been, there's a, Kyrie, obviously he's caused locker room issues and that does take away from, I think, how well he's done this year. But at the same time, you can't deny the stats. So. Yeah, I've never really understood the Celtics for better without Kyrie argument. You know, last year in the postseason without him, they were very close to getting eliminated by a not-that-great Bucks team in the first round. And they lost, obviously, to Boston, or Cleveland, pardon me in the finals and I think Philly is just an especially bad matchup for Philly and that's why Boston was able to do so well but I don't think any of that success has to do with missing Kyrie if anything they probably would have been more effective in that series with Kyrie and they would have had a very real chance at beating Cleveland I think if Kyrie was healthy so I've never really understood that argument like you said Kyrie has made a lot of improvements this year with his efficiency and he's become a much better playmaker and defender. Boston's been kind of up and down all year, but Kyrie has been that one kind of constant keeping their head above water. And if they're going to make a long run in the playoffs, which is still very possible, it's going to be because Kyrie is one of those top tier dynamic point guards and he's going to be able to lift and lift them to that level still. Kyrie's played 64 games. So far this year. So he's had much injury concerns. So I think Boston's keeping him fresh for the playoffs where hopefully he can lead this team. And there's been a lot of frustrations. Kyrie said it's hard for him being a leader. I don't think Kyrie is a natural leader. He left Cleveland and you saw that the, the news came out that Kyrie called LeBron and apologized to him. Like that Kyrie calling LeBron and apologizing it shows his, his maturity. But then again, inside that locker room. Things aren't perfect. I think Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown went from being the second and third options last year to Jalen Brown, first off, not even starting, and then Tatum being the third or fourth option on this team this year, depending on who's on the floor. But with Gordon Hayward and Kyrie coming back in, Gordon Hayward also coming off the bench and starting, depending. It's gone off and on all year. But those young guys, they're young, and a lot of guys, they're not stubborn, but those young guys definitely have a lot of learning to do. And for them, for their first and second year in the league, if you want to go to the conference finals, you got now Kyrie coming back and taking reins of the team. It's It's been a weird dynamic in the locker room. But I think come playoff time, this team can go pretty far. Yeah, it's definitely been a weird off-the-course season for Boston. And like you said, I wouldn't say that, you know, it was bad for them or anything. But I do think their playoff run last year kind of not inflated maybe their egos, but did kind of give – Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown a sense and Rozier kind of a sense that maybe we should be doing more than we're currently doing. So it's been tough for them to kind of rein it in and fit back into that team dynamic once you add high caliber star like Kyrie and someone like Hayward who 
should be playing a lot better than he has been playing, who was kind of has underperformed expectations all year. It's just been a really weird mix. Like you said, Kyrie's been not the best with the media conversations this year. He's kind of taken some thinly veiled shots at teammates and it just hasn't he hasn't handled the pressure that well. But on the court, I don't think there's any really concrete argument against Kyrie being, if not a lock, pretty damn close to a lock for second team All-NBA. And then third team is where things get interesting. I have Kemba in my first guard slot, and then my second guard slot, I have Russell Westbrook that I think you and I probably disagree on. Yeah, I have Kemba as well. I put Bradley in my second guard slot, and you could point to a team success. It's really kind of hazy at that point. I don't think putting Westbrook there is a problem at all. Westbrook's probably my first omission. He, um, I think efficiency is just a big part of it. Beal has been so underrated with how well he's been scoring and his improvement as a passer. The Wizards have been disappointing all season, but Beal has really stepped it up, especially without John Wall into the, kind of that primary go-to all-encompassing offensive weapon. So I think he deserves credit. I think he has put together a really strong case for third team, but I definitely would understand why Westbrook, who again is averaging a triple-double, would get that spot for you. Yeah, he's averaging 23 points, 11 rebounds, and 10 assists. His free throw shooting has been one thing that a lot of people have looked at this year at 65% his three-point percentage being at 29. But just not even his offense of impact, his on defense. He's seventh in defensive rating at 102.7, and then he's fourth in defensive win shares. And that also, the Thunder are a great defense, but part of that is getting all those guys on that young Thunder team to buy in to that defense is a lot of on Russell Westbrook and Paul George. And he's one of those guys, his imprint on the game, if you watch it every single night, he brings it 110%. And he goes at guys all night long. And honestly, I think he's one of the most frightening guys in the league. So if I was playing the Thunder one night, even if Russ goes 10 of 25 from the field, it's not an easy game for the opponent's point guard. Yeah, I do think Russ kind of gets an unfair shake in that respect with regards to his shooting. I would say efficiency and is part of the reason why I would favor Beal over Westbrook, but he's still just the relentlessness with which he attacks the rim and his effort, like you said, on defense, his passing, his, his attacking mentality are all things that keep the Thunder afloat on both ends quite a bit. So it's really close. I do see the argument for Westbrook. It's, it's really a tough one to decipher. And going back to uh, to Beal, I mean, he's averaging 26, 5, and 5.5. Five and, and one thing that, that comes out to me is he's shooting 55% on twos, which is really impressive for a guard and the way he scores the ball. And especially with that Wizards team having as little talent as it does, his impact has been – he's had a very big impact without John Wall on that Wizards team this year. And so I, couldn't, I could see that last slot between – Russ and Beal being a coin flip, but I do think that Kemba Walker definitely should ha- be locked in on that third team. Also, with the All-NBA teams, there's a lot of max contract implications, so if Beal gets on this All-NBA team, he could be eligible for the Supermax, and if I'm Washington, I'm not letting Beal walk, so they could possibly have two max guys on their team, and then Kemba Walker also this summer 
I think I don't think it's likely that he resigns just because of what Jordan and the Hornets have put around him. But still, yeah. he's averaging twenty five, four and six this year. Yeah, uh, yeah. Washington's financial situation is really going to be interesting to monitor over the next few seasons. Obviously, they just fired Ernie Grunfield from the front office. So whoever gets hired there to in succession is going to have a really tough time, you know, kind of working around that John Wall contract because I don't think anyone's going to trade for Wall until he returns and proves that he can effectively lead an offense like he has in the past, which I'm not sure is a guarantee. So that's going to be tough, especially if Beal does get that All-NBA nod and is eligible for a Supermax contract, balancing those two kind of big money contracts with a roster that overall isn't very impressive at this point and probably is in need of a rebuild is going to be really just an interesting balance that they're going to have to find. But I do agree. I think with what Kimba's done this year, he's maybe not a lock, but I think he's definitely the most solid candidate for that third team spot. Yeah, you could definitely point to and say that Kemba has done the best with the least amount of talent. So Jeremy Lamb is technically their second best player, but if you go by um, player efficiency rating, it's Cody Zeller. But Kemba is basically no talent around him. I mean, Dwayne Bacon starts for the Hornets. It's, I mean, the other night they had, Kemba had 47, and there's all their four other starters combined for nine points, and the Hornets lost. So you could say he has the worst number two guy out of all the, definitely out of all the guys on this All-NBA list. So, and there's this crazy stat that I saw the other day that the Hornets are one in five when Kemba scores over 40 points, and when James Harden scores over 40 points, the Rockets are 21 and seven. That just points to how little talent that Kemba has around him. And for that Hornets team to be 35 and 42 is pretty impressive. Yeah, the Hornets have just done such a poor job managing contracts. They've given out so many big money deals to average or below average players that it's just been really hard for them to put decent guys around Walker. They might have one of the most boring overall rosters in the league. And then you have Kimba, who's one of the most exciting individuals, you know, both talent-wise and in terms of just entertainment. He's fun to watch. So you one would almost hope that he signs somewhere else next season just so we can see what he does with perhaps more talent around him. All the indications all year have been that he wants to stay in Charlotte and that Charlotte wants to re-sign him. But it, when it comes to actually putting pen to paper, it's hard to imagine him not having some hesitance if Charlotte doesn't have a clear path to improving the talent that he's playing with. Cam is at that age where he's – does he want to win or does he want the money? And I just want to stay comfortable in Charlotte. So living in Charlotte, it's it'd be nice to have one decent guy still there, one all-star there. But if he left, then it'd be a complete rebuild for the Hornets. But moving on to the forwards, I think my first team I have – Giannis and Paul George filling out those forward spots. That means Kevin Durant is on the second team. But I think Paul George and Giannis, like we talked about earlier, they're going to be top three in MVP and top three in defensive player of the year. So I think it's just, in looking back on what Paul George did before his injury, his impact and the level he's played at this year is definitely worthy of that first team. Yeah, I think circling back to everything we said during the MVP discussion, there's really no other way. You can, no one knows you could put above Giannis and Paul George. For first team, and I think Durant is very solid, the number three guy on that list. And I would put Kawhi um, as the fourth guy, the second guy on my second team. I know you might not have the uh, same opinion there, though. 
Yeah, I have I have LeBron on that second team. And obviously, KD is worthy of that. He's still having an incredible year. He might be, if not the best, the second best player in the world right now. Uh, but my my reasoning for putting LeBron over Kawhi on that second team is Kawhi's missed about a fourth of the year, and he's technically not injured anymore. It's just load management, and LeBron actually had that groin injury that sidelined him for a lot of games. And a team doctor for the Lakers said this week that the groin injury that LeBron had puts the average NBA player or the average athlete out for six months, and LeBron came back in about eight weeks, which just shows LeBron is a freak of nature and not human. And then still putting up 27, 8, and 8 this year for this Lakers team. And with all the problems they had, is I think LeBron still has it. I just think the, t- the talent on his team this year, he couldn't – in 2017-18 season, he played full 82 games and then literally single-handedly carried that Cavs team to the finals. And I think this year he just was worn out and was put in a similar situation with Rob Plinka and Magic Johnson putting a terrible team around them and then not getting that AD trade done kind of just destroyed the rest of the Lakers season. But LeBron over Kawhi in the second team, I think. And I just don't think the voters will – I don't see voters putting LeBron on a third NBA all-NBA team above Kawhi. Uh, or below Kawhi. I just don't see that happening, at least not this year. Uh, I could see in the future. But looking at this, this is so LeBron's final streak ends this year, and then his streak, I don't know how many years it's been, but he won't be on a first-team All-NBA this year, which is another historic streak that's ending. I think it's like over 10 years maybe that he's been on first-team All-NBA. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think voters will end up voting LeBron second team, and obviously it's a strong argument. Another one of those probably coin flip debates here. I, and again, it's always subjective. You know what you value: team success versus best player on the second best team in the NBA, which is what Kawhi would be. I do think pr- production-wise, LeBron has still been spectacular all season. Both have missed pretty considerable time. I do think with just how bad L.A. has been versus how good Toronto has been is really a difference maker there. And I do think Kawhi is very significantly better on defense than LeBron at this point, at least effort-wise. I just don't think LeBron is engaged as much as he used to be. And that's probably smart on his part to kind of save energy for offense. But Kawhi is just so significantly better in that respect and with how good Toronto has been that I would put Kawhi at second team personally. But, again, it's LeBron. He's been great. I do think there's been a pretty sizable overreaction to how bad the Lakers are and conflating that with LeBron and saying that he's been bad when that really isn't the case. He's still been pretty clearly one of the best players in the league, so I can very much understand you putting him on second team. I think that's a very solid argument, and it's really close. So with Kawhi and LeBron, they've – I think LeBron's only played 55 games this year, and Kawhi's played 56, which will surpass LeBron in games played. So it just depends on what the voters value, like you said, winning or winning and team success or individual success. So the last forward spot, I have Blake Griffin, who's a lot of people have overlooked what he's done this year. He's averaging 25, 7.7 rebounds, 5.5 assists, and he's shooting 46% from the field and shooting 36% from beyond the arc. Yeah, I have Blake there, too. I think he's just been too good to overlook, even with the kind of the up-and-down year for Detroit. They don't have a ton of talent around him and Andre Drummond, but his improvement, like you said, as a shooter, he's a really solid playmaker from the low and high post. And he's just been 
again, it's kind of market size. He just he's kind of out of the public eye a lot, so people don't always give him the credit that he deserves. But he has been absolutely spectacular. And if he was perhaps on a better team, you could argue that he would have a very real shot at second team All NBA. So I do think Blake is kind of locked into that last forward spot. I know I saw Danilo Gallinari thrown around as a name, and I do think he deserves consideration with how good he's been this year. It's he is another underrated name on a smaller market team. Not necessarily smaller market, but, you know, the Clippers have just always been kind of a few tiers below the Lakers in terms of popularity. But I do think it's Griffin without much hesitance in that respect. I, I remember the at the beginning of the year when Blake Griffin had that 50-point overtime win against the Sixers. He just was hitting everything. And a fun stat about Blake He's third in the NBA in step back threes. So you can just, his game has completely evolved. He came in the league as an athlete and now he's a facilitator. He can score from anywhere on the floor now. And his free throw percentage also has improved as well. For him being 30 and the way his game looked as young as he was, he's definitely evolved into the modern NBA. And like you said, Danilo Gallinari is another guy you can mention. Did consider putting Ben in over Griffin, but I tend to kind of peg Ben as more of a guard. You know, just generally, I think he carries that role for the Sixers, although he has played more off the ball since Jimmy and Tobias have gotten to Philadelphia. But, yeah, if voters are going to commit to Ben as a forward, I think he does have a very real argument there. I do think he has also improved a lot as the season has gone on. He's played really good games against Golden State, Milwaukee, etc. over the past few months. Um, his free throw shooting has gone up, which I think is a really big kind of part of the equation when it comes to him being better against those elite teams, him having the confidence to attack and draw contact at the rim and being able to hit those free throws is going to go a long way in him not getting schemed out by guys like Toronto and Boston. So I do think Ben is a very real argument. You could also argue him in the Bradley Beal or Westbrook conversation. I think he's right there, too. So I do think Ben will get some third-team votes. I don't know if he'll get there. For his being in his second season, it's definitely taken – well, some people say it's his third season. But his second full season playing, for him even being an honorable mention, says a lot about just his improvement every single year. Let's move on to centers. I think you and I are the same with Embiid, first team, and Jokic, too, which in MVP voting, I think Jokic is going to go above Embiid just because of the narrative and other factors. But I think Embiid is definitely the – considered and marked himself as the best center in the NBA, averaging 27.5 points, 14 rebounds, 3.5 assists, and 2 blocks. He's just the most dominant player in the league up there with Giannis. Yeah, I'm in total agreement on that point as well. I have Embiid won Jokic on the second team. But like we mentioned earlier with the MVP discussion, it's kind of neck and neck both ways. There are a lot of really smart people who are going to have Jokic as the first team center. And that's very much understandable. He's a really spectacular offensive talent, and I think he kind of edges out Embiid perhaps on that end. But Embiid goes right back and has the clear edge on defense. So it could go both ways. I, too, would put the Embiid on first team, Jokic on second team. It's really that third team center that's kind of up in the air and open to debate a bit more. One thing I think that would voters could put Jokic above Embiid is – some people say the best ability is availability, and Jokic has played 13 more games than Embiid. 
just with Embiid with his load management recently, basically just rest and then his knee tendonitis. Jokic has been a little bit more available. So some people could put him on that first team, do that. But the third team, I have Rudy Gobert in that third spot. I have him over Carl Anthony Towns. And I did that just what you talked about earlier. His defensive impact is impeccable. And I, I'm not the biggest Cat fan ever. ever. Yeah, I definitely think Cat has an argument with his offensive versatility, his production. He is he's genuinely one of the most impressive offensive bigs we've seen in a while with just how versatile he is on the three point line, his ability to score kind of at all three levels, his post up game is really strong. But like you said, I think Gobert for me earns that spot. The Jazz are a significantly better team than Minnesota this year. And, again, they're an elite defense, pretty much all of which can be attributed to Gobert's presence in the middle. He just changes so much for opposing offenses with his ability to deter drives and to force people to change their approach at the rim. So I would, he's not bad on offense either. He's a super efficient finisher, really kind of a vertical spacer and pick-and-roll guy that definitely is a productive offensive piece as well. So I think Gobert deserves that third spot. Looking at stats, he's second in offensive rating and he's third in defensive rating, which is incredible. And like you said, he's very good at rolling to the basket. He actually broke the NBA single season record for dunks. Last week he had his 270th dunk. Everyone talks about how much Giannis dunks, but Gobert has the record, which is pretty cool. He's very good at setting screens and rolling to the basket with Donovan Mitchell and Ricky Rubio, who facilitate the ball to him very well. Yeah, I think Gobert is, is again, just... By play style alone is kind of what underrates him. People tend to look at the offensive heavy talents in more in a more favorable light. But with what Gobert has done, becoming probably the best defender, or if not one of, if not the best, one of the best defenders in the NBA, pretty much fixated in that conversation. You know, I, I think he deserves it. I didn't want to discredit Carl Anthony Towns from anything he does on offense. Obviously, he's a great post scorer. He can his three ball this year's improved a lot, and he can as a big man. He's very versatile. And let's move on to the all defensive teams. What's your first team looking like? I have uh, Derek White from San Antonio, and Marcus Smart on the perimeter, and then I think the three defensive player of the year guys that we have discussed at length on this episode in Paul George, Giannis, and Gobert rounding out my first team. Yeah, actually, I have the exact same first team. And Derek White coming out of nowhere. Uh, Duante Murray missed the year with that ACL injury, and they have one of the best player development teams in the entire league. They just keep pumping out all these guys that are picked late in the draft, and Derek White comes out of nowhere this year and is a first-team all-defensive candidate, which just says a lot about Pop, a lot about Derek White and the whole Spurs organization. Yeah, and I think what's really impressive is I think DeJounte Murray was kind of a first-team all-defense prediction for a lot of people before his injury, before the season. So the Spurs already had one of those high-level defensive guys on the perimeter, and then he gets hurt, and White steps up and fills that role just as well. He becomes, you know, an all-defense caliber player, and he has really kind of put himself on the edge of stardom almost. He has a very real path to becoming a cornerstone to the San Antonio team. He's been really solid on offense, but like defense, he's versatile. He has the size, the length to guard a few positions on the perimeter. 
and his instincts are just off the charts for someone as young as he is NBA-wise. So yeah, it's been a really impressive season for him. And then my second team, so one guy that no one has talked about just because of how bad their team's been and just because of the market is Mike Conley. I have him as my first guard slot on the second team. And defensively, it's the thing, his, the advanced stats don't favor Mike Conley because the Grizzlies as a team are so porous defensively that the stats don't favor Conley, but if you watch, the eye test isn't accurate most times, but in certain situations, like uh, this example is Mike Conley, you can see that guarding passing lanes, he's great on the ball, poking balls loose. He's a very elite defender. And then in the second guard slot, I have Eric Bledsoe, who's, I thought Eric Bledsoe should have been the second all-star for the Bucks instead of Chris Middleton. I'd say he's their best perimeter defender for sure, and his ability to fight through screens, he's probably the best guy fighting through screens in the league. And, he gets put on team's best players. Like he was guarding Harden when the Bucks played the Rockets last week when Harden had, I think he had 20 points the other night and Eric Bledsoe was the primary defender. And he's just, he's got a new contract and he deserved it because he's played very well this year. Yeah, I am. Um, I actually have a couple of different guys. I had Danny Green and Drew Holiday. I think Holiday is kind of in a similar, similar boat as Conley in terms of eye test versus the advanced statistics, which don't necessarily back him up as an all-defense candidate this year. But the Pelicans have been through a lot, and I think Holiday has been kind of the one steadying presence on that roster, and his defense plays a really big part in that. There aren't many guys who I would trust more guarding an elite guard on the perimeter than Holiday. His length and his instincts are just so impressive. He can kind of block shots on the weak side, too. He's just all over the place. He's a really great on-ball guy as well. I would put him there, and Danny Green has been a really big part of Toronto's defense being one of the better, more versatile groups in the league. You know, Toronto has a lot of talent on that, and Serge Ibaka, Siakam, Kawhi, Lowry are all very good defenders, and I think that might hurt Green in a sense, in that he might just get overshadowed, but I do think he has been a really big key for Toronto's success this year and a really underrated aspect of that Kawhi trade overall. And I think he deserves a shout. Yeah, that was a very underrated piece of that Kawhi trade. And um, yeah, obviously Drew Holiday is a better defender than Mike Conley. Uh, I just had to shout out Mike Conley just because he's been overlooked for majority of his career. Um, Never gotten an all-star, probably one of the biggest all-star snubs of all time. But going back to Bledsoe, he's... um, Danny Green is a great defender, and Drew Holiday is as well. Um, but uh, Eric Bledsoe is top 18 in both defensive rating and defensive win shares, uh, which attributes to that Bucks team. But Bledsoe's also played pretty well. Um, and the last two forward spots I have, I have Draymond Green, who's had another incredible defensive year, and then I also have Pascal Siakam, who's taking a big role on that Toronto team, just with his his length and athleticism he's a great defender shot blocker um and just overall he's pretty good on the perimeter as well yeah i had um robert covington and Kawhi as my last two forwards i think covington might get hurt by just the lack of games because of his injury here to finish the season but before that injury he was a very legitimate defensive player of the year candidate i think right up there with you know gobert and Giannis and george I think a lot of people had him above those guys earlier in the season. So I would put Covington. I would still give him the nod just because I think he deserved it. 
he really lifted Minnesota in his brief time there from a bottom-level defense to a really solid defensive team. And it was most of that credit, if not all, can go to his presence. So I would give him that nod, obviously. And Kawhi, for obvious reason, I think his reputation is well-deserved. He's one of the best on-ball defenders in the league. His ability to use his length, his hands are ridiculously quick. You know, those are just the two guys that I kind of felt were worthy. Yeah, Kawhi's a great defender, and Roko was first team all uh, all defense last year, but his um, those injuries he's had this year, um, he actually recently just got sat for the rest of the season, but it's still Robert Covington's a great defender. He only played 35 games, um, which might knock him off, but uh, if you don't look at the injuries, he's still one of the – he's a top 10 defender in the league. Um, the last spot, the last center spot is going to be very, very close – what do you, who do you have for that last spot? Um, yeah, I was really close to putting Embiid, but I ended up settling on Miles Turner. I think he's developed into one of the best rim protectors in the league this season. And you know, I Indiana has been a really solid defensive team all year. They've maintained that without Oladipo, who is in his own right a very solid All Defense caliber guard. And Turner's growth as a rim protector, shot blocker, has played a big part of that. So I went with Turner. Yeah, I was I was Turner as well. Um, leads the league in blocks, uh, 2.7 blocks per game, um, and just he came into the league and he struggled a lot with his mobility on defense. And now he's he's able to go out to the perimeter and not get caught up in pick and rolls, which Embiid struggles with a lot, and was one of the reasons why uh, I put Turner up there. You could also say that Gobert is Embiid's a better perimeter defender than Gobert is. Um, but Gobert interior, on the interior is obviously uh, superior in that aspect. But Miles Turner on this Pacers team this year is um, leading that defense, especially without Victor Oladipo, who was who's also a preseason um, all-defensive candidate. Um, without him, it's all on uh, Miles Turner's shoulder now. And for him being uh, a young guy to average this many blocks and um, – be top five in win shares and defensive rating is very big. Yeah, and I, I don't want to say Embiid has had a down year on defense, but, you know, with the load he's asked to carry on offense, I do think there are moments and games where Embiid's fatigue gets to him and he kind of conserves himself a bit more than perhaps he has in the past on defense. So I do think that's part of the reason why I would give the edge to Turner. Yeah, yep. Agree right there. Um, yeah, let's move on to the all-rookie team. Who's What does your first team look like? Um, I have Trey Young and Colin Sexton in the guard spots with Luca Bagley and Aiton filling out the front court. Nice. I uh, I had the same thing, except instead of Sexton, I had uh, Shea Gilgis-Alexander. Uh, and my reasoning for that was that Shea's the starting point guard on a playoff team. And... He hasn't had – they also have Patrick Beverly on the Clippers, but he's averaging 10 points, three rebounds, three assists. And one thing that Shea was knocked on when he came to the league was his three-point shot. A lot of people didn't know if he was going to be able to shoot uh, well from deep in the league, and he's shooting 38% this year from deep um, on a decent amount of attempts per game. And I think Sexton is 
Sexton's on my second team. He's the first guard on my second team. Uh, he's definitely a good scorer. Just his problem right now is being able to facilitate and play make. There was that quote that came out um, from the Cavs this year. as an undisclosed Cavs player, but it was obviously J.R. Smith that said that uh, Colin Sexton had no basketball IQ whatsoever, which is kind of funny coming from J.R., who's probably the guy that said it. But Sexton has, throughout the years, improved his playmaking and his ability to score the ball. He's averaging over 15 a game, which is good for a rookie guy. But Shea being on a playoff team and his defense and his length being 6'6", Long and athletic, I, I had, that put me over the edge for him on first team. Yeah, I think with all rookie teams, it's kind of diff- more difficult perhaps than the other discussions to gauge team success versus players' production just because a lot of those high-end rookies are on bad teams and don't have a chance to compete. So unless, you know, it's like Luca, where he's a central piece on – uh, what was one point a competitive team? I tend to value productivity in that sense, so that's why I went with Sexton over Shea Gilgis Alexander. Although Gilgis Alexander obviously is a very strong case, and in very similar to Shea, Sexton was not a very good shooter at Alabama. You know, his three-point shot was a big concern coming into the season, and it was really bad earlier in the season. But he has kicked it up a notch. You know, over the second half, and he's shooting 40.7% from deep on 3.5 attempts per game, which is, I think, well wow. above expectations for what anyone would have had for him, which I think is just a super impressive thing, you know, considering what I thought he would become. He was like the 18th guy on my draft board. I was way lower on him than most, so I've been thoroughly impressed with his growth in, on, in that respect. He's added some touch. He's just been a lot better than expected. He's an 84% free throw shooter, which was another concern. So his shooting has been a really pleasant surprise. He's been pretty efficient, you know, compared to what, again, expectations were. So I, I would give the nod to Sexton, but I do think Shea has a strong argument. And he's the first guard, of course, on my second team. Yeah, and so I say we have we've talked about Trey and Luca and Aiton already. Uh, the, the last guy on the first team is Marvin Bagley. And he's doing really well this year, averaging uh, just about 15 points and seven and a half rebounds on 52% shooting. Another uh, fun guy on that Kings team. And he's the Kings owner called him the next KD. Uh, They called him and De'Aaron Fox the next KD and Russell Westbrook, which I don't see. But Bagley's three-point shot, I think he's shooting 30% this year. He's improved that. And once he can get that into his game, along with his superior post is he's a nice jump hook and he's just very quick and uh, nifty under the basket. Once he can add that three point shot, his game's going to excel to the next level. Yeah. Bagley's been really solid. I know there are a lot of draft guys before the season who were kind of low on Bagley. Didn't think his skill set at Duke would translate. I was never in that group. I thought he was in that same tier as JJJ, Mo Bamba, kind of that next tier below Luca and Aiden. But he's been really solid coming off the bench for Sacramento. As you said, his three-point shot has improved. He's obviously a very energetic rebounder and interior finisher. Um, yeah, I don't see the KD comparison, but I do think he's going to be a really important part of this very talented young Kings team moving forward, and I think he's really deserved that first-team spot. Yeah, definitely. And he's 
Bagley, I, if I was the Kings GM, I would not have taken him at number two. Um, even even then, at the draft, I still wouldn't have, even before I knew everything about Luca and Trey, I still wouldn't have taken him at number two. But he's still, I still think he can be a, a 15 and 10 guy consistently in the league. Um, and then when he gets that three-point shot, he, he can even get a higher ceiling. So that Kings team definitely has tons of young talent. And uh, Harry Giles didn't make either of my first or second teams, but he struggled with injuries throughout high school. I, I saw him play a few times in high school before his mm-hmm. second ACL tear, and he's he's the best high school prospect in this class and then got hurt at Duke, uh, limited playing, and then missed his entire first year last year. So this being Giles' rookie year, he's he's done pretty well, averaging like seven points, four rebounds. Um, but a, a front court of Bagley and Giles, and then a back court with Buddy Hield and De'Aaron Fox, and then uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich at the small four. The Kings' future is very, very, very bright. Hopeful. Yeah, I also enjoyed Giles' kind of comeback story just because it was, like you said, he was a really entertaining prospect coming out of high school. He hurts his ACL, and he's always been a really positive spirit. He's always been you know, heralded as a great teammate. So that's been fun. And I do think circling back to Bagley that he's gotten a lot of unfair kind of criticism just because of where he was picked and the fact that everyone knew he should not have been picked over Luca. I don't think Luca should have gotten past number one. I think Phoenix made a mistake not picking Luca, but yeah, I do think that's kind of been part of the narrative that's going against Bagley is just how dumb the Kings appeared at the time for taking him. But, you know, when you factor that out of the equation, I think he's fully deserving of first-team honors, and I think he's still going to be a really solid player for a long time, even if it wasn't the right pick necessarily. So your your first – I know on your second team you have Shea in that first guard spot. Uh, what do you have filling out the rest for your second team? I have Landry Shamit as my second guard, and then Kevin Knox. Sharon Jackson Jr. and Wendell Carter Jr. filling out the front court. Nice. I have I have the same thing. Shamit, uh, starting with Shamit, he's just he. I think Shamit is the steal of the draft, getting picked at 26. I think five, ten years from now, we're gonna still be in awe of how he dropped to 26. He had to be in that Tobias trade, which a fair trade off. All Sixers fans miss him. Uh, I do thoroughly, just because, especially with our bench and our depth, losing more. To get Tobias, but um, worth it in the end just to get star power. But Shamit, 41% from three on five attempts per game, and he's starting on that Clippers team alongside SGA, and they're a playoff team. And he's he had that one, uh, he made seven threes a week or so ago, and he's killing it. And my difference between yours is I also had Knox and Jaron Jackson Jr., but instead of Wendell Carter, I had uh, Miles Bridges. And just from not from uh, I just think with Miles Bridges, he was on the Hornets aren't much better than the Bulls, but he's on a better team, getting less minutes. And I think from a defensive standpoint and his ability to move block shots and his athleticism, I had him on my first team. And he is he also has his athleticism. He can jump through the roof. The dunk contest didn't didn't make him look too hot, but he's he's gonna be a high flyer and I think he's gonna be good. Um if he can carve out that jump shot, he's gonna have a bright NBA future. Yeah, and again, it's that argument between production and health. And all those things, it really depends on what people value. Wendell has only played 44 games, which is going to hurt his case a bit. 
But I think for those 44 games, he was pretty clearly one of the 10 best rookies in the league just with his defense as a rim protector. was much better than expected coming out of Duke. And he's such a well-rounded offensive player with his passing and his shooting and his footwork in the post. He was a really big part of that Bulls team, perhaps not a big enough part. Arguably, I think Jim Boylan misused him at times. It didn't give him enough free reign. You know, their insistence on using Robin Lopez as much as they did for a lot of the season was odd. But I do think Carter, in that respect, earned it. We have talked we talked about Jaron Jackson earlier, just how good he is on defense in terms of his versatility. Fouling is an issue, but that's the case for a lot of rookie bigs. That's something he's going to improve in time. And he's just a really special shooter at his position. And then I think Kevin Knox has kind of been given an unfair shake in New York. Efficiency has been an issue, but he was a really important scorer for that team for a lot of the season. So I would give him the edge in that respect. Yeah, I think considering the lack of talent the Knicks have had this year, uh, Knox is shooting 37% from the field, but he's still averaging uh, close to 13 points and four rebounds. And it's three-point shot. He's shooting 35% from three. So that is hopeful. And I think this summer, Knicks will, I mean, hopefully uh, they can get one or two max guys. And that will help give Knox some more open looks. So I think Knox definitely is – he's has potential to be a great perimeter player, a uh, great scorer. Him in Kentucky, I just remember watching those games and his ability to shoot from the outside is definitely translated to the NBA, along with Jaron Jackson, who has – Probably the most unorthodox good shot I've seen. It looks really weird. He has a weird uh, – it just looks stiff and, uh, yeah, unorthodox. But he's – Jaron Jackson's a very good shooter, shot blocker, and defender. Yeah, I definitely think there were some concerns coming out of Michigan State about how Jaron Jackson's shot would work if it would work as well at the NBA. But it's still a pretty quick release. It looks weird, and his hands are kind of positioned oddly, but it's smooth most of the time. He's proven it this year with how efficient he's been, and I do think Kevin Knox perhaps was asked to play a bigger role than he should have, and that was just a product of the Knicks being one of the worst teams in the NBA and giving him more free reign than most teams would. So I do think Knox still deserves that spot. Yeah, I definitely agree on that. And another guy is uh, another guy for another rookie is Alonzo Trier. Uh, he averaged 10 points per game this year, 11 points per game this year, three rebounds, two assists, coming off the bench. He was a spark plug for the uh, – he's two-way contract and quickly got uh, converted into a two-year deal, full two-year deal, and he shot 45% from the field and almost 40% from three. He's another guy that was an honorable mention for me. And then along with that was Mikel Bridges from the Suns. Just being on that Suns team, just as big as a joke as they were, he averaged eight points, three rebounds, two assists. Coming out of Villanova, he had three and D potential, and he still does. He only shot 34% this year, but with again, like I said, that that team, the shots aren't aren't coming easy, so his field goal percentage is low for a reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Mikhail is maybe one of the few rookies who would have looked better on perhaps a better team like the Sixers, where he would have been given a more defined role and been able to fit that versatile two-way wing role for a good team. I think the Sixers would have utilized him perhaps even more than Phoenix has at times. And um, 
With regards to Trier, I definitely think he deserves a shout, and I think Mitchell Robinson deserves a shout as well. He's been a really impressive shot blocker. His athleticism is off the charts. He's, I think he had the longest streak of two-plus blocks for a rookie since, like, Manu Bowl, like the second longest streak since, like, the wow. mid-70s. You know, behind the new bowl. So he's been really impressive. I think he deserves a shout. The Knicks have some, obviously, have some very exciting young talent there, as bad as they were this year. But yeah, I would, I think I'm pretty comfortable with the 10 guys on my list. Yeah, I agree. And um, if you want, we can, so uh, to wrap up the awards prediction uh, pod, let's, so at the Sixer Sense, we have, uh, Chris does a he organizes a roundtable predictions for all the awards this year um, and just like we, we predicted now we did one at the beginning of the year and just going to point out some things I got completely wrong uh, I had Giannis as my MVP Rudy Gobert is my defensive player of the year Luca is my rookie of the year but I had Markel Fultz like another a lot of our other riders as our as my most improved player and uh, that obviously did not pan out and um, wish the best for Mark Hill. He has a lot of stuff to figure out, but he only played 19 games this year and was nowhere close to even touching the NBA floor this year, let alone be most improved player. Yeah, I think I had Kawhi as my MVP pick. That obviously didn't pan out. I do think Kawhi has been really good this year. He's been obviously the best player on the second or third best team record-wise. In Toronto, so I don't know if it was necessarily a bad prediction, but I had Kawhi up there. I had Mark Hill too. I perhaps was a little overly optimistic in that respect. I'm still a firm believer in his talent. I think he has the tools to become a really solid pick or a player, but yeah, he has quite a bit to kind of sort through and figure out before he's a productive NBA guy. Yeah, we all. Yeah, I hope the best for Mark Kelly. Definitely has, he has the tools. Uh, Brett Brown said on the Low Post podcast that everything you want in a guard, Mark Kelly has. He has the length. He has. He's Mark Kelly. One thing that people don't know is Mark Kelly is a very, very smart basketball player. He's a very high IQ, and he knows the game well. But it's the thoracic outlet syndrome and everything that's gone on with him has definitely been. Definitely played his first two years in the league. But uh, I think yeah, that wraps up our NBA awards. Obviously, we won't have picks, but uh, I think they'll be pretty close. And hopefully the Sixers get some love. Yeah, that was, uh, that was fun. I think the Sixers have some candidates, obviously, for different awards in Embiid and Simmons. You know, Tobias and Jimmy might be on the very, very outskirts of some of the All-NBA picks, but I do think Ben has a very real argument for third-team All-NBA as a forward or a guard, depending on where people vote for him. And I think Embiid's going to be perhaps top five or six in MVP and Defensive Player of the Year voting. So those are guys who, although they might not win an award, should get some love. And I do think moving forward, those are two guys who are going to be increasingly prevalent in these discussions in later years hopefully next year we get a a full drama free year with jimmy and tobias and they can be all stars again and jimmy can get back on that all defensive team we'll see 
Yeah, I do think if they do come back, having an offseason to kind of work things out and figure things out defensively, rotations-wise, would be a really big help moving forward. Appreciate you guys listening. We'll keep you up. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.